0: Good morning, church. We're going to be in Job 33 today, continuing our our journey through Job, looking at Elihu. Typically, when we look at the book of Job, we end up scanning the beginning of it, or reading the beginning of it, just scanning the middle, and then jumping to the end And we often miss the middle. Uh, I wanted to focus on the six chapters that um, Elihu brings us, starting in chapter 32. Today we'll be ending up in chapter 33. As we uh, look out amongst our faith family here, we know that we support one another and love one another uh, and carry one another's burdens. As it says in Galatians, this is how you fulfill the law of Christ as you carry one another's burdens. And as we talk about suffering, you know very well uh, the sufferings of your own soul and your own family, and also of a, of a few uh, that you hold close to you and you talk to, certainly uh, those in your own family, your own spouse. But um, you know that the the burdens that uh, all of us sometimes carry as well. Some of us have prayer requests that we share with one another that um, you know, some people are bold to just share what their, what their burdens are, uh, and it's an encouragement to all of us. So as we talk about the sufferings that we each go through as Elihu responds to Job today rebuking him, uh, it's a very heartfelt topic, um, as we know and we carry each other's burdens. Um, so I know it's, it's a meaningful meaningful topic. We're not just talking about Job. You bring to mind your own sufferings and the sufferings of those that are around you. So I pray this is a blessing to each and every one of us today. And in the book of Job, God gives us a theology of suffering. And so I would ask you today, what is your theology of suffering? If you were to tell us what your Christology is, we'd probably all agree on some very simple basics. Jesus Christ came about 2,000 years ago, lived here in the flesh for 33 years. And we could go through the Apostles' Creed even and talk about the things we agree about, knowing that while he was here on earth, he was also ruling the universe as a member of the Trinity. We could talk about his then return, and we would all agree on Christology, or we could talk about your View of the church and your ecclesiology. I love when when we have a small group of people to ask them, How long have you been coming to this body of Christ? Whether it's been three months or 30 years, right? It's a beautiful thing. Going around the room and asking people what they love about their particular faith family is a wonderful thing to share. We could talk about your theology of end times. A little bit more controversial, but we could certainly all agree on some things, right? even as we went through the book of Revelation. But what is your theology of suffering? Well, that's a little bit more explanation required, isn't it? A little bit more personal. Maybe we're still working through our theology of suffering. My Christology, I feel like it's pretty settled. My view of the church, by the time I was 30, I got a pretty good view of it. End times, I'm still growing in that area. Theology of suffering, that's a lifelong journey, isn't it? You know, if you were to look at Jonah, you would see that he had a pretty good theology about God. He had good theology, but I don't think he had a good theology of suffering. You look at Jonah and you know that he says that he knows that God is a merciful God, as we read in Psalm 103, showing compassion. It's the very reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew you wouldn't save those people, God. <laughs> he had a good view of God. When he was talking to the sailors and telling them which God he believed in, he gave them three really good answers. I worship the God of the Hebrews. I fear this God, the living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's an A+. Plus pretty good answer. But we know we didn't have a very good theology of suffering because one of the keys in having a good theology of suffering is to be thankful and grateful. Jonah when he got that tree or that shade tree, that vine and the Lord took it away from him, boy was he upset. You touch his physical comforts and he was not happy, same with Job, same with many of us. And so my point is is that you can have a good theology what is also known as having orthodox theology, what the church has always believed is right according to God's word, but you can be lacking in your theology of suffering. I think there's room to grow for all of us in that, but there are some foundational issues as well. I once talked to somebody many years ago about suffering in life, just leveling with somebody, how's your life, etc. This person said they didn't have. Much suffering to go through in life. Life just kind of turned out like they expected it to. And just no real big trials in life. And I just walked away. Maybe a little bit judgmental. Maybe wrong. But I was just thinking, man, I don't have much in common with this person. You know? Boy, I can't relate to you. Have a nice life. strange, right? (laughs) And then come to find out, A while later, this person is having an affair with somebody for a long time. You're like, well, you weren't very honest, were you? Just straight up lying about it, right? We need to be honest with one another and telling each other what our sufferings are. You don't have to tell it to the whole world. But we do need to talk to others about our sufferings. We need the encouragement of the body of Christ. I mentioned Job, but we're not going through Job. Job. Sorry, I mentioned Jonah. We're not going through Jonah. We're going through Job. Jonah is a short book with only four chapters. Job is a long book. As sufferings and trials are always long. And it requires long suffering. That old word for patience and endurance. And part of Job's trial was enduring not one, but three persistent friends. They're true friends, involved forgiveness, who didn't give good counsel. And so Elihu comes along, starting in chapter 32, which we went over last week, and this week in chapter 33, he comes as a bit of a relief. He tells Job that he's wrong, but he does so in humility and with truth. In humility and truth as somebody who has also, first of all, listened to Job. So by way of review, the main point of all three wisdom books, that is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and now Job, the main point the books are trying to make is to fear God. Specifically, in the book of Job, is to walk in the fear of God as you walk through sufferings. And in the end, Job learned this lesson through his sufferings. As you see at the end of the book, Job is certainly fearing God. He's not even talking anymore. Job doesn't really talk anymore after chapter 31. We have a few lines from him. He's done with his speeches. And in the beginning of the book, he is summarized as a man from the land of Uz, not Oz, the land of Uz, as somebody who does fear God and turn away from evil. And so we remember that this Elihu man has about six chapters that he gives us, or specifically six chapters. We have an introduction, we have a conclusion, and we have the first part of his speech in chapter 33 today. What we're going to do is instead of reading the entire chapter, we're just going to read a couple verses at a time and then talk about that particular point that we have. First, we're going to see the continued humble boldness of Elihu in verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me as I read Job 33, first of all, verses 1 through 7. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. What my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. You wanted a trial, Job? This is it. Verse 6. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. What we find is that Joe, uh, Elihu is both humble and bold. And if we only have humility, then we won't act. You just be humble. You won't be confident or bold to act. But if we only have boldness, then we're going to be arrogant, speak out of turn, Elihu is not speaking out of turn. He has waited his turn. And he is demonstrating both humility and boldness. He starts out in verse 33 by telling Job to listen. He's saying, I have listened. I have acknowledged you, Job. Now listen to me. And he's answering the right questions. He's not speaking up quickly. Too often we don't listen well and we answer the wrong question. Job here, I'm sorry, Elihu is here saying that his words are going to be declared uprightly. I speak sincerely. That's pretty bold. It's confident, and it demonstrates faith in God. I know I'm right. What are the things you know you're right about? I can speak with confidence that I was blind, but now I see. I know God is real, and these are the reasons why are things we would tell people. He is declaring uprightness. Verse 4 is giving that credit, though, really to God. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. He's recognizing that if he speaks truth, he's not doing it of his own. He recognizes he was created by God, and the Spirit of God would be inside of him has come upon him in an Old Covenant, Old Testament sense. For us, the Spirit indwells and lives inside of us. With the Word of God in front of us and the Spirit of God inside of us, we can understand his words. We can boldly live our lives. We can boldly proclaim it to others. As Elihu, even as a prophet of God, I would say, is or acting like a prophet of God, is speaking here. So he has that boldness. He wants Job to answer him, gives him the opportunity, though Job doesn't speak up. Then he demonstrates humility. I'm towards God as you are. We're all called to use our spiritual gifts. Yes, Corinthians talks about the body of Christ having different roles, some more visible than others, some more honorable than others. But the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Doesn't mean all sin is the same in its consequences, but all sin is equally separating you from God, and all sin is equally forgivable by God. I too am pinched off from a piece of clay. I am made from dust as Adam was made from dust. We have here a strong allusion back to the creation principles of Genesis 2. You're going to see in this particular chapter that Elihu, as I mentioned last week from Job 28, 28, where he quotes God, we can't find that particular scripture. Job being as old as Abraham must have received a common oral tradition of scripture being passed down, of revelation rather being passed down. And so I would see here in Job 33, you're going to see two or three times where Obviously, Adam would have told his descendants what God had told him about creation, passed on to even Abraham, and here even Job. You have a clear understanding that Elihu understands that he is made most basically up of a body and a soul. And as Genesis 2 communicates to us clearly, God made Adam out of the dust of the ground. But then he breathed into him the Spirit of God to give him life, as Elihu says in verse 4, understanding that there is more to us than just what we see. I'm not just made up of about 60% water and blood and bones and a brain and skin, etc. What are you made of? Well, I have a body and a soul. He's recognizing who his creator is. That gives me confidence to speak, gives me confidence to live, to know how I am made and who I am made by. In verse 7, we come to the theme of the book, stated in the opposite way, you don't need to fear me, Job. I'm going to be kind to you. Knowing that the six chapters of Elihu is really preparation for the four chapters that God speaks to Job. We don't need to fear man. Who do we need to fear? Is God. Moving from an unhealthy fear where we're scared of him because of our sin to a healthy fear where we can move even to confidence because I recognize that God is great, that I am not, that he has forgiven me of my sins. And so we see here the attitude in which Elihu comes to Job, and this is important. He's not just coming to him in truth. He's coming to him in love. He's coming to him in humility. Boy, that's a hard lesson to learn. That is a hard lesson to learn. To know the words you have to say, but to speak them with tenderness, to speak them at the right moment, and maybe even not to speak too many at once. Well, then we come to the next part, and we see Elihu rebukes Job. Follow along with me, verses 9 through 13. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, Job, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks and watches my paths. That's what Job is saying. But Elihu here says very clearly, look at me in the eyes, behold, Job. In this, you are not right. I will answer you. You see, God is greater than man. And why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Again, in verse 8, Elihu is repeating that he has heard Job. That is the first part in any rebuke, is to hear somebody. To acknowledge what's going on, and to listen. This is introduced, this idea of Job justifying himself before God is introduced by summary form and introduction in chapter 32 says he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. That's chapter 32, verse 2. Here we have the description of what that means to justify yourself rather than God. Job is bold enough to say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, there is no iniquity in me. Specifically what he means is, my sins have not caused... My sufferings. But in the process, he's claiming himself to be pure without transgression. The book is right in saying Job is blameless. But Job, you are not sinless. If you go to Psalm 19, you see a beautiful definition of being blameless. It doesn't mean you don't have any sins. It says, Lord, keep me from my hidden sins. Lord, also keep me from willful sins. Somebody who is walking blamelessly, Psalm 19 says. Somebody who is not sinning willfully. They have a regular pattern of repentance in their lives. They don't have a lifelong, persistent, unrepentant sin. You can't take one particular sin and hold it in your pocket and show up on Judgment Day and say, God, I've repented of my sins. I'll accept this one that I kind of want to keep to myself. No, we don't hide that. We don't lie about it. We do confess our sins to God and to one another. Verse 12, Elihu is very clear. Behold, in this Job, you are not right. Proverbs 27.5 says about a rebuke. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Again, though, spoken in humility and in truth. Listen also to Proverbs 17.10 that says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into into a fool. I would say that Job is taking all this in because he doesn't defend himself anymore. He's done speaking. The speeches of Job are done. that's exactly what it says in 3140. The words of Job are ended. He's got a couple comments towards the end of the book where he says, I'm done speaking. He's learned his lesson. You know, it really takes prayer though, in order to have a friend accept a rebuke. You have to pray ahead of time. You have to not make the mistake that I have made way too many times in approaching somebody with rebuke and bringing them a list of ten things. That is foolish. Bring one or two things and bring the word of God with you. And then in verse 13 he says, Why Job, do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? Job, why are you saying this? Job, don't you understand what the Lord has said in Daniel 4.35? I guess Daniel hasn't lived yet, but we should know the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. Who understands that God is the king of all the earth, and Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4:35 that God does as he pleases with all the hosts of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, "What have you done?" Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson through suffering. Job's not doing very good at trusting God's sovereignty. Job is saying, will God not answer any of my words? I wanted to read to you some stories of people who are kind of crossing the line of saying to the potter, what are you doing? If I'm clay, May it be to me, Lord, as you would have it be. I want to read to you some stories from um, Larry Crabb's book, Shattered Dreams, God's Unexpected Path to Joy. You can only write a book like this after you've been through suffering. And these three short stories I want to read to you help us identify with Job. Yes, Job is in the wrong, okay? But he's human. And how often do we think like Job? Why is he not answering me? Why is he letting me go through these difficult circumstances? I want to read to you these three stories that are not people who are at the end of their process of grief, stages of grief, and they seem to be in the middle of it, but I want to read to you them so that we can understand that Job is going through a hard time. He's lost everything, as you know. I assume these are made-up names, but these are real stories of summaries of people's lives. It says, Susan privately wishes she had stayed with her promising career when she was younger in marketing. She is now 52 years old. Her husband, Joe, is a workaholic, emotionally numb, and rarely there. Her three children, this woman, experiences them more as a disappointment than a satisfaction in life, her grown children. She knows God could have arranged for her never to meet Joe. She's going down a spirally path here. She needs some encouragement from, the, from others to teach her about the biblical truths of marriage and of love, Right? but we first have to listen to where she's at. She wishes that she would have stayed with the firm that is now doing so well. These are the questions that she is asking. Another woman, Peggy, is 38 years old and single. Her job is decent. She likes her dog, and she keeps herself busy. Whenever she watches a movie where a man pursues a woman, she cries. A deep part of her heart remains untouched. She wonders why God doesn't either bring along a good man who would help her to feel more fulfilled in Christ. She needs to know that some truth, right? She needs to know that your fulfillment doesn't come from a family, but it comes ultimately in Christ. We need to listen to her story. This is her process of grief. Job is in this process of grief, going to get a nice, kind answer from somebody. One last story. Mark always wanted to be a college professor, When his dad died, though, he dropped out of college to support his mother and four younger siblings. He got into sales and he ended up doing well for himself, making lots of money. Now at 57, he enjoys a good marriage. His kids are happily married and well off. He's even positioned to retire early. But his heart still aches when he dreams of a classroom in a small college. His dream will never be, but the story doesn't end there. When the pastor preached last Sunday on the courage to dream, he leaned over and whispered to his wife that he wasn't feeling well, and he left. That's a man who's wallowing in some self-pity. That's a man who needs some encouragement. He needs the body of Christ, and this man is connected to the body of Christ. He's in church. No doubt these people need to be encouraged to be thankful not necessarily for their circumstances, but can they be thankful in their circumstances? They can. They need to be encouraged with the words from Psalm 27, which concludes by saying, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. We then move on to Elihu's answer specifically, to how God speaks. And he answers Job's questions. We're going to start, and he answers them in two different ways. First, we're going to look at verses 14 through 18, where we see God speaking through his word. Verses 14 through 18 say, God speaks in one way, then in two though man does not perceive it, in a dream and a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds. Then he, God, opens their ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride that is take away pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword." Verses 14 and 15 demonstrate how God specifically speaks to his people in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. God speaks to people through visions and dreams. Listen to Hebrews 1 explaining, though, as we're part of the New Covenant, how God has spoken specifically by his Son and through his word. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, long ago, time of Abraham, the time of Job. In many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, the visions and dreams that these prophets would have would have authority in God's people's lives. It's the way God worked. In this New Testament time period, God has spoken to us by his Son. And that authority, he transferred to the apostles. And the apostles' authority was transferred where? To the Word of God. 27 books, with the words of Christ recorded and revealed in the first four. And the rest of it, the Word of God revealed to us. And that authority given to the church. That is how God speaks to you. Ask that question. I love asking the question, how does God speak to you? And we should all have the same answer. Through God's word. The spirit of God inside of me. The word of God in front of me. Let me tell you this just as a side note. If you have received a dream or a vision from the Lord, it has no authority in anybody else's life. I like what Rob has said about this. He said, I have no interpretation for you. That's fine if the Lord has led you in a specific way. And that's another way that Rob has guided us to say, how has the Lord been leading you? It's a better word to use than the Lord spoke to me, the Lord told me. It's okay if you use those words, we know what you mean. But it's helpful to say he has led me in this way, right? But however the Lord is leading you, it has no authority in anybody else's life. you have a dream or a vision from the Lord and he's led you in a particular way, so be it. But it's got no authority in anybody else's life. How has God led us as a church through his word? In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have it recorded and revealed for us. So how does God speak to us? He speaks to us through his word, but we have to respond to it. And we can't respond to it unless he, that is God, opens up our ears. As it says to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You have to stop long enough to listen to God's word. And you're terrified with warnings. Warnings of repent. There is indeed coming judgment. It is guaranteed to happen. You don't want to meet Jesus as your judge, Adrian Rogers said unless you also know him as your Savior. You will meet him as your judge. There's no doubt about it. And if you have heard his word, you are then having the first step in being enabled to repent of your own sins. His words terrify us. In Deuteronomy 5, when the Israelites are given the word of God through the Ten Commandments again, 40 years later, as they're about to enter into the promised land, starts out by them knowing that they have a relationship with the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. They're given the Ten Commandments, Then it's described to them after that how when they were given the Ten Commandments on the mountain, it was terrifying. They were in the presence of the Lord. God is great, I am not. That's what Elihu has already told us. God is great. He is a holy God, and he can't stand in the presence of sin. And so Christ has taken away that reproach. Then I am enabled in verse 17 to turn. What is the Old Testament concept of the New Testament word repent. To turn. Turn from what? Turn from me. Turn from my pride. And turn towards God. Not just the first time, but every day in my entire life. An attitude of repentance. As Jesus started out in the Sermon on the Mount, take the log out of your own eyes before the splinter in somebody else's. Then your soul will be saved from the pit. Knowing that I am more than just a body, I am also a soul. And He will save me from perishing by the sword. Ultimately, the New Testament lets us understand that the perishing that we fear most especially isn't the first death, but the second death. Which is hell. But then we come to God speaking to us, not just through his word, but God showing himself through painful circumstances. God being active and God revealing himself through pain. And now we're in verses 19 through 22. Follow along with me as I read this. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is also wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out, and his soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. He's describing Job. He's listening to Job. He's acknowledging Job's sufferings. Specifically, his physical pain. And we see that suffering is a cause to call out to God like this, with our hands open, as Job started out his book. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as his physical pain increases, he kind of starts to kind of more go like this. Don't we tend to do that? Start to get angry at God for our circumstances instead of worshiping him. But it takes a process to go through that. It takes time and it takes the body of Christ. Notice though, again, this word rebuked. The word wasn't there previously, but Elihu did rebuke Job. In verse 12, you are not right. But note also Job... You are being rebuked, you are being guided, you are being disciplined by God in your own pain. This word continual strife is a unique instance of this word dealing with strong pain, strong strife. Normally this word continual or strong isn't associated with a negative thing, it's associated with strength As Moses' hands needed the strength of those around him to hold it up, Israel was strong in winning their battle. Here, it's a strong pain. It's an enduring pain. That would seem to get worse as we get older, as the general condition of mankind, to the point where you die. I believe that God has designed it like that, so as we get closer to him, we see more and more our need for him. And even in the last days of life, there is often silence. What a great way to meet your Creator after having not spoken much. Where words are many, sin is not absent. That pain, though, again, is an allusion to the result of the fall and the curse. No doubt Adam would have passed this, these words that he had received from God on to God's people, on to Abraham, on to Job. We know that this pain is a result of the fall. And If you go back to Genesis 3, what you see is that this pain is specific to women, is specific to men. A woman's pain will be pain in childbearing, The King James Version says sorrow even. I believe indicating that that pain in childbearing or rearing for a mother isn't just in those hours of delivery. It's a lifelong pain when your kids don't go the way you would like them to go, especially for a mother. There was a survey done of 1,100 comatose people and those that lived longer than a decade or so, almost every single was rare, and in every single instance, who was their caretaker? It was their mother. It's really not much stronger than the love of a mother. A dad, strong, protector, great wisdom. Who does a kid often go to when they're hurt? They go to a mom for that compassion. Yet moms can be tough, can't they? Listen to Ruth Bell Graham's prayer for Franklin Graham in this book, Rebel with a Cause. He wasn't living a life pleasing to the Lord in his younger days. And his mom didn't lecture him in this one particular instance, but just said one day, Franklin, I'm praying that the Lord will do something to get your attention, break your leg or put you in the hospital. I have prayed, Lord, don't kill him, but do whatever it takes to get his attention. Gee, thanks, Mom, he says. I mean, it's a worthy prayer. And my point there is to illustrate that this pain and circumstances in life sometimes comes from your own children. And for a mom, she feels it even worse than a dad, apparently. What about the mom that was never even able to bear children? The woman, rather, who wasn't even able to bear children. Then you come to the pain of a man. His pain is in his work. We could all talk about the struggles of of work. There's certainly some overlap there for men and for women. But the pain meets, according to Genesis 3.16, in the strife that is in marriage. And it talks about the struggles of a man leading and a woman following or the biblical word submitting. And so these pains happen in life and God does it so that we would draw near to him. Suffering is a cause to call out to God for help that would save our souls. I've got a cup of water here that I think would illustrate, everybody see that? I believe that illustrates our lives when, when suffering happens. It's a pretty clean cup of water. Things are going okay. And then a trial comes. Our lives look okay. A trial comes represented by this knife and stirs things up. Oh man, look what's coming up in my life. And it brings all that sin up. It's not just hangry anymore. There's a lot more going along with it. It's there. And suffering brings it out. And God does it so that you would be drawn closer to him. I want to read to you some of these words that Mr. Nick sang to us. God moves in. Mysterious Ways or A Mysterious Way by William Cooper from about 250 years ago. Some artists have adapted that to their own sufferings. Nick had a great version of it that he sang to us. Listen to just four verses from this. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and stand his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. This is somebody who has a theology of suffering. They've determined in their mind to trust God because he is sovereign and because he is good. We move on to the next few verses in verses 23 through 26. And we see that we actually need divine help to respond to God's word and these painful circumstances. Follow along with me as I read verses 23 to 26. If there be for him this person who is requesting a mediator, that is Job, someone who wants an answer, if there be for him an angel or a messenger, a mediator, that is a prophecy of Christ, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. If you find this person, then verse 26 says, Man prays to God, and he that is God accepts him, and sees, And we see his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. We need divine help to respond to God's word. We need the prayers of others, but yes, most especially we need Christ. Job says very clearly in chapter 19, verse 25, I know my Redeemer lives. Here you have a very clear prophecy of the mediator that we need that Hebrews talks about. If there be for him an angel, probably better translated a messenger, that is a mediator, one of a thousand, one somebody who's representing others, to declare to man what is right for him, as Jesus did in his public ministry and then is merciful to him as Jesus isn't just our example, but has accomplished that salvation. Yeah, he is our ransom. Then we are renewed. As Isaiah 40 says, Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We need that divine help to respond to those circumstances. And then we will pray to God. There are a few instances in the New Testament that talk about us accepting God. But the preponderance of them, the primary concept isn't that we accept Christ into our heart, though we do, but it's especially about God accepting us. That is what salvation is. Restoring to man his righteousness. We don't give God a clean heart. What kind of heart do we give God? Going to give your heart to God? Here, God, here's my great heart. No, no, here's my heart. Dirty. Needs real cleaning. We give God a dirty heart. In return, he gives us a new heart. A clean heart. We then respond by praising God for what he has done in our lives. In verses 27 to 28. We sing before others and God, I would add. We sing before men And we say, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. There it is. That confession of sin. God is great, I am not. I have sinned and perverted what is right. I'm not hiding my sin, I'm not lying about it. I will confess my sins as 1 John 1.9 says. He is faithful. He will forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness by giving me Christ's righteousness. My Bible has two columns in it. Verse 27 says, I sinned and perverted what is right. Right across the way. Verse 9 is Job's claim. I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, there's no iniquity in me. Job, sure you're blameless, but Job, you are not sinless. Job, you are not sinless. And the first part in dealing with any problem is admitting that it's there. I have sinned. I am a sinner. But God has redeemed me from the pit. We read Psalm 103. Let me read to you again just the first four, verse five verses of it. Listen as I read Psalm 103, verses 105, verses one through five. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It goes on to list down below what Jonah knew, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But do we trust that even in the midst of our own trials? Or do we reach out to God with this fist that we should not be reaching out to him with? He kind of concludes... By reminding us that God disciplines continually those he loves. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man. Let's us go through some trials in life. That is, so that we would be brought back our souls from the pit. That he may be, that we may be lighted with the light of life. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12 verses 3 through 11, that talk about discipline. The key verse says the Lord disciplines those he loves. And then surrounding that, it explains that. Listen to it. Most of it's self-explanatory. Consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from such, such such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Have you forgotten the encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It goes on to explain, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all of us have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, the word discipline here is not necessarily a direct result of your own personal sin. In Jonah's instance, it seems that it was. In Job's, it wasn't. We can never really know what that is. The word discipline here has in mind God's continued that he allows us to go through. We don't know all the reasons for it. They tried asking Jesus this question. In the city of Siloam, I wonder if there was somebody teaching about pain being a result of your personal sin. Because twice it's brought up in that city about that problem. In John 9, they ask Jesus, who sinned this man, or his parents, this man who was born blind? Neither his parents nor this man, Jesus said. This, this one's just so that he can pass glory on to me. Tells the man to then go wash in the pool in Siloam. Then they ask him in Luke 13, hey, those people that died, 18 of them in the tower of Siloam, were they worse sinners than anybody else? Nope. Hey, let me tell you what you need to worry about, Jesus says. Worry about your own sin. Don't worry about anybody else's. Exactly how we started out his ministry with getting the log out of your own eyes. And if we respond to that discipline, we respond to that pain, we respond to God's word, then He has brought back our soul from the pit that we may be lighted with the light of life. Going back to Genesis 1, God who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. In the beginning, yes, the earth was formless and void. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be. It's not just a creation story. It's a salvation story. How does John start out his gospel in the beginning, giving us a clear allusion back to Genesis 1? And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul makes it especially clear in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as you think about being humble and bold in your relationship with others, I don't want you to just think about Elihu. don't want you to think about just being balanced in your love of others. I want you to think about Christ being formed in you. Jesus was humble to the point of shedding death on a cross in his own blood. Was he bold as well? Most certainly. He started out at age 12 going to the spiritual leaders and talking to them. He was bold and set his face strongly to go to Jerusalem after his three and a half years of ministry. So may Christ be formed in us in the midst of his word being preached and the painful circumstances we each go through and as we each then bear that burden for one another. Would you pray with me? Lord, life is a pretty long journey. Today is just one part of it, Lord. Lord, we're going to forget this word that we have, each and every one of us, heard today. I pray you would remind us of it by your Holy Spirit this week. I pray you would remind us of it as your mercies are new every morning. I pray you would remind us of it next week as we continue through the Gospel of Mark with Pastor Rob. As every week your people gather faithfully, Father, to hear your word. I pray, Lord, you would help us to respond to the Spirit's promptings of conviction. I pray we would respond to... The pain that's in our lives by your grace, by your mercy, to call out to you with hands wide open. I pray you would help us to speak in humility as well as boldness to those around us, Father. And that we in this body of Christ would bear one another's burden, fulfilling the law of Christ, which is the law of love that others may know we are your disciples. Amen.